As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Thanks to Netflix, everyone is once again talking about this man. Arguably the most recognizable footballer in the world yes yes for england david beckham has done it big time so what is it about david beckham that saw him transcend sport on popular culture and became the brand that even to this day everyone wants a piece of it's another beautiful day here in qatar welcome to doha david beautiful huh? so coming up david beckham and how he became a global icon that broke America. I'm Ayo Akinwalere. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. And Beckham saw Sullivan off his line. Oh! That is absolutely phenomenal. From the halfway line. Number 23 is going to make his exit here. Back-to-back titles for Beckham to take off into the sunset. All right, let's get into this. With us for this one to talk golden balls himself, David Beckham, the Athletics, Adam Kraft and Karl Anker. And also joining us from the States, uh, Felipe Cardenas as well. We'll also hear from Paddy Harvison, uh, former Manchester United head of communications during the peak of David Beckham's celebrity. Right, let's get into this documentary. There's got to be spoilers here. I've only seen episode one. I know, (laughs) Carl, you've been an astute student. You've done all four. Respect here. Let's talk about it. Anything in that documentary that made you go, oh, I never knew that about David Beckham? Let's start with you, Carl. No, not really. <laughs> I, part of this is because I'm a foot, you know, a Manchester United fan. I'm a football journalist. So it's it's my job to know all this stuff. I spent a lot of that documentary going, hang on, that's not true. Or going, hang on, they've left that bit out. Or, hang, no. So, you know, this is, this is a four-part documentary. It runs up to close to five hours. Is directed by Fisher Stevens, who's Hugo out of Secession. He was also the lead in uh, Short Circuit. Um, so that's always quite fun. And episode one starts with his goal at Selhurst against Wimbledon from the halfway line. And I'm going, oh, that's quite fun. And I'm explaining this to my partner who is not English <laughs> and therefore is getting a real insight to you know English football culture in the 90s. And the thing that struck me was they go from that goal and then it goes to Manchester United fans outside Old Trafford talking about that goal. And I go, the goal was scored in London. Why have you cut to a bunch of United fans 
looking like they're walking out of Old Trafford talking about this. This is sports documentaries in the world past the last dance in that they're documentaries in air quotes in that they're very good but there's loads of like very clever sleight of hand editing to get stuff through I know Adam you did a tweet uh, asking was Beckham really only good in, in the treble season after the quarterfinal which is what the documentary wants to have you believe and it's absolute fiction David Beckham's David Beckham was in go- involved in 20 goals in the treble season he played 55 games he was integral to that he came second in Ballon d'Or Vyop Votin but this documentary makes you believe that he comes into that season not playing really well until fans chant his name uh, in 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 an April game. It's a, it's a really curious experiment. It's drama, Carl. It's drama. <laughs> That's what it's about. You are literally that kid who tells the magician how he does his tricks, right? <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> I, I I've never I've never quite finished making a documentary, but in my attempts <laughs> to make one, my want to tell the truth sometimes clashes with my want to tell a good story. <laughs> Can I tell you what I didn't what I didn't know? Go Felipe. I mean, I I followed David Beckham from a very young age. I've always considered him a very good player. And you know, the pop culture status was 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 something else. It was just part of his brand. But the nineteen ninety-eight World Cup for me, that you know, that that's where the documentary really, you know, turned, you know, made it interesting because I didn't know about Glenn Hoddle's comments because we didn't get those comments in the States. So that to me was eye-opening. And I had a totally different perception of Glenn Hoddle before I started watching the documentary. Now I'm like, what was that guy thinking? Like he completely buried his player. So to Carl's point, that is also the beauty of editing. And 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 that's one side of a story. But certainly that was alarming to me to see how Glenn Hoddle reacted to just the David Beckham phenomenon. Yeah. Adam? Yeah, I found it incredibly watchable. Um, I watched it all in around, so I think back to back over a couple of days. And uh, the thing I didn't know was whose boot hit David Beckham, <laughs> um, which is one of the, I don't, I don't, I don't want to ruin that for people, but it was obviously a different Manchester United player's boot uh, that hit David Beckham when Alex Ferguson um, sent it flying across the room. Um, and then the other thing which I never knew before until this was how uh, Alex Ferguson's assistant, Carlos Quiroz, appeared to have reservations over Beckham's, whether it was either his personality or the fit tactically into the system. I'd always thought that was like ultimately like a personality clash between Beckham and Ferguson over the celebrity aspect of it and just kind of having enough of everything that surrounded Beckham. So that revelation that Carlos Quiroz, who was you know a very kind of highly rated assistant of Ferguson at the time, also appeared to have doubts over what had been this very long-standing connection between Gary Neville and David Beckham down that right side at United, I found really surprising and interesting. And I would love to hear Carlos Quiroz talk about that at some point as well. What about this in terms of Brand Beckham in general? I mean, it's it's very rare that you get a footballer who's as famous playing football, but beyond it, actually becomes this insane global star. I, I do think we talk about crossover appeal a lot when we talk about athletes, the football players who are known for things other than football. And Beckham, the good thing about the documentaries, they really explain how ridiculously famous David Beckham was. You know, G- Gary Neville, very, very eloquent about the subject. Roy Keane talks about how Beckham in, almost invites celebrity on him by buying bigger cars, by buying bigger watches. There's a joke about buying a pen in there as well. Uh, as Adam says, there's a bit where Kiros mentions one reason why Beckham might be declining. That has something to do with a Pepsi advert, which I find astonishing. Another thing that comes out in this documentary is just how funny Victoria Beckham is. 
And we talk about Brand Beckham. Brand Beckham isn't just David. Brand Beckham is also what Victoria brought to the table, which you, you bear in mind, Victoria Beckham was it was widely said she was the worst singer in the Spice Girls. And then for years, throughout David Beckham's sporting career, was thought of as not a proper fashion designer. Whereas now, she's a highly respected member of, of the fashion scene. She does front covers of Vogue, and they only talk about her fashion stuff rather than her singing career and whatnot as well. I think what really grabbed me is the sort of the absurdity of it. I mean, in what other world would you have Roy Keane and Anna Wintour as contributors on the same yes. on the same television show. I mean, you know, she was. I mean, she was kind of dressed in like full Devil Wears Prada. I mean, the get, sunglasses get never come off. Ever. Yeah, like absolutely. I mean, for people who don't know, you know, people who maybe don't know, she's the editor in chief of Vogue, very long standing. And then you've got Roy Keane talking about Beckham buying pens and all of this kind of thing while eating a, a biscuit. Like, it, it, there's a surreal absurdity to a lot of this that I think actually encapsulates that era really quite, really quite beautifully. And also like the amount of people that appear to have just said yes to talking on this documentary, right? It is not easy to get all of these people as contributors. I, I think it's interesting what you said about Glenn Hoddle, uh, Felipe, because I think it's a shame actually he didn't contribute because without him contributing, you lose that grasp of actually what the pressure must have been as an England manager in that period in the late nineties, what it must, how exhausting it must have been to be coaching an England team, but also dealing with everything that surrounded Beckham at that time. Not ex necessarily excusing uh, that. So, yeah, I, th I think those actually who didn't contribute, it maybe cost them in some way because clearly, you know, you only got one side of the story. Yeah, I'll just say something about Victoria to Carl's point. What I took away also is that how influential she was in building the mm. David Beckham brand. I mean, there were just some shots of him, of them talking to each other on the phone after a game. And she says something to David Beckham. It's like, your hair looks great, but I can see your roots, like things like that. It was like she was molding this potent this future pop culture star and and if you look at his background he didn't come from that background at all and so it was as if like yes they were, they were in love and that's that's a really cool part of the story uh but also she was very much saying like I, i'm gonna i'm gonna prop you up you're going to wear this i'm going to do your hair uh you're going to look like this towards the camera like all his facial expressions seem to change throughout the the documentary as well so that was that was revealing just her role behind brand beckham but I've got to say, though, that her role as well, especially for this documentary, it brings in a whole new audience. A Spice Girl is part of this documentary as well. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. They, they were they are iconic. They are an iconic pop culture band, brand, everything, whatever you want to call it. And, and at the time, they were just massive, especially here in the States. Here in the States, they were huge, huge stars. And there was the boy band uh competition currently happening in the states uh and and here comes a band of you know very talented women to, and they, they want to compete at that level and they did and they did so that's why she was so she's such a huge part of this documentary and still such a huge part of just the beckham experiment in the states i think not only in the states though as well i mean like when you look back at what that magazine deal was for their wedding one one million pounds for the exclusive access to photographs from I think what Gary Neville calls that fucking wedding, right, or that bloody wedding, right? <laughs> that that is like mind blowing. I mean, we're talking about a very different era of media and uh, I suppose celebrity culture. You're this, you know, this is kind of just sort of coming off the back of Princess Diana, 
yes. kind of era. I was going to say the same thing. And actually, you know, we'll hear later in this episode from a man called Paddy Harvison, who was director of communications at Manchester United. And he was there from kind of 2000 to 2003. And he went from being uh, Manchester United's director of communications. His next job was looking after Prince Charles, Prince Harry and Prince William. So that gives an idea of the way that managing reputation at Manchester United exploded during that period in the 90s and early 2000s, where clearly it correlated with massive success and the court of Alex Ferguson. But a huge part of that was these huge personalities that started to develop, whether it was Keane or Giggs or Beckham. um, And clearly the Beckham concept just blew everything out of the water. I mean, there wasn't really a more recognisable man in the West, was there, at that point? That inspired so many haircuts. And <laughs> yeah. th- there is a bit in a documentary where they talk about a, a minor fracas between Ferguson and Beckham, where Ferguson, where Beckham is wearing a hat. Um, and I wish they went further into it, because there's a bit within Ferguson's book uh, about how you know, this argument happens, because Beckham comes in wearing a hat, Ferguson says, remove it. Beckham doesn't. Ferguson says, remove the hat. And then when Beckham does, his hair is bold. And the reason why he hasn't, he's worn a hat the entire time is because he didn't want the paparazzi or anyone to know he had shaved his head until game day because he knew the impact his haircut would have. Which, I mean, this is, this is proto-Kardashian stuff, right? This is up there with Dennis Rodman dyeing his hair blonde and Madonna picking up the phone going, who's the handsome man? When it was at the Spurs. Th- these, are, these are sporting events that have nothing to do with sport, but dominate both sides of the newspaper, front and back. I'll tell you a personal story in relation to that actual haircut that, that David <laughs> Beckham had. So this this would have been around kind of 2000, 2001. And he'd had those kind of blonde curtains that were very kind of like, you know, British bo- British US boy band in the, in the 90s kind of vibe. And he shaves his head off. Anyway, I had a fancy dress day at school um, on the Monday. And... Clearly Beckham, as you say, hadn't revealed this haircut until midway through a match on Saturday afternoon. And on the Saturday morning, I was preparing for the fancy dress day on Monday as a kind of six, seven-year-old boy. And uh, my sister dyed my hair blonde <gasps> for, for this fancy oh dress gosh. day. So I then go into school on the Monday morning. The whole world is talking about Beckham shaving his head off, just as I'm going in with like... <laughs> blonde curtains to the extent the headmaster of the school during the morning assembly called me out on it called me out on the fact that uh i'd gone big on blonde just as beckham had shaved his head off so there you go look you might think this you might think this is all about david beckham but it's actually about me yeah, it's about you it's, it's about, about you. you well I was, I was just going to say like it's so interesting because i'm so fascinated about this cultural icon and i think this even transcended race and, and various you know People with David Beckham, we went, you know, my brother basically and I went to a really rough school in Birmingham and David Beckham wears a sarong. My older brother turns up to school. I'm talking, I'm talking rough, rough in Birmingham, turns up in a sarong 
full respect because wow. David Beckham, no lie, David Beckham had worn a sarong wow. and it was a bit iffy, but my brother turned up in a sarong day after, full respect, not a word said. Brave, and I was just like, boy. what on earth is going on here? I mean, th- this is this is actually quite intense. And for me, that in itself signifies, firstly, the power of football with working class young men. But secondly, the cultural impact that, that David Beckham did have um, transcending different spaces. What do you think, Felipe? I remember being in the United States I grew up in the States and I would go to the supermarket with my mother and you would look at those tabloids like right before that when you were at the cashier. And again, remember, I knew David Beckham well. I, I followed football my entire life. I knew who he was. I knew him as a, as a footballer. Okay. And I remember being at the cashier with my mother at a supermarket and he was on the front page of like the National Enquirer, which is like just a ridiculous tabloid wearing the sarong and i was like what is going on here like what is this what am i witnessing right now you know like that had i had never seen anything like that and again we were this was the era where you know the nike ads and the nike adverts were were so popular and you got to see all of your favorite players in a different sort of space uh uh, sort of like acting, but they were still in the, the role of their football persona. And Beckham, I felt like just went beyond that. Uh, and, and and I think the fashion part for, for me being, you know, at that age, I, I didn't really understand it. You know, I didn't know what, like, what was the point of it? Uh, but you could see that he was clearly, you know, going beyond the pitch here. I, I mean, my thing with Beckham was I love the shoes. I was like, I need those predators. I need them right now. You know what I mean? Like he, he could rock them. He looked good in them. And he was like, if you play, if you look good, you play good. He epitomized that part of the game. And so he, that, that was what I always gravitated towards. I, yeah, I had, I had a Predators growing up, begged my dad to get, to get me some Predators. And I spent pretty much that entire weekend just trying to do free kicks over and over and over again. I mean, I grew up in Leytonstone where David Beckham was born as well. We were born in the same hospital. I, I also had, he's just like me. He wasn't not, he's not just like me, but that, that that's what part of Brian Beckham does, right? He, he makes you believe that if you, if you buy Brill Cream or if you buy these boots or if you do whatever, you can be like David Beckham. And you think about how there was a good 10, 15 year period where I mean, most men's magazines, you know, Esquire, GQ have survived, but a lot of them don't exist anymore. But there were se- huge sections in all these magazines for years of the Beckham look or be like Beckham. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it'd be what he's driving, what he's wearing, how to talk to girls, boom, 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 boom. Beckham does this, so therefore you need to do this. He was massively influential in, you know, in British culture. And that probably came to the detriment of his football career. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akinwalere. Hello, it's Ali Maxwell here. I'm the host of the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. And if you're enjoying this deep dive into Brand Beckham, why not check out our latest episode all about Beckham the player, digging into the numbers behind his stardom and a closer look at his playing style, his role and the tactics of his era. That episode's available now. Just search for the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast wherever you get yours. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's bring it back to the football a little bit. And I know, Adam, you spoke to former Manchester United head of communications, Paddy Halverson, and uh, here's what he had to say. For most players, David was different, of course. And by the time I joined, he was already, you know, such a substantial figure in public life and in the media. So the way I used to describe it is that when he was wearing a red shirt or a training kit, he was the club's responsibility and I would handle all media relating to that. When he wore an Adidas top for an advert, he was he had an agency, I think it was SFX, who looked after him and someone minding him in that front. And then of course when he was out with his wife dressed in, you know, some fancy clothes at a premiere, there was another PR agency, I think it was the outside organization, who'd done the Spice Girls, who looked after that. So he had kind of three layers of reputation support. The media attention on them was so extreme that certainly if it was I was running club comms, every story about him was potentially a Manchester United story, even if it was about what he was wearing last night or his new haircut. I remember him turning up once for, I think it was a UNICEF charity gala, and he'd done the Mohican and just, you know, it just went nuts. I was getting calls from journalists about his haircut. And I'm thinking, look, don't ring me about it. I mean, you know, either speak to the guy himself or... And I, I, I suppose I would pass that ball along the line. And his comms guy at SFX who did the Adidas deals would probably say, not for me. And then it would end up with the, you know, the publicist for the Spice Girls who would have to ask answer questions about why he's got a Mohican. So, yeah, there was... It was, in that sense, as someone like me, it just was an extra load in a way that you never had that with Paul Scholes. And I suppose to go towards the end of where... Beckham leaves Beckham leaves the club did you see that coming during his final season clearly he, he dropped out of the starting lineup towards the end of the season but did you see the signs internally throughout the season this could be the end I mean you got the impression he wanted to stay but my interpretation was perhaps his his advisors wanted him to move on and to a different stage you know, I think as someone says in the in the doc, I think Gary Neville says he always had ambitions and ideas bigger than just being a footballer. And I think you need to bear that in mind when thinking about his career path. You know, which is quite extraordinary if you look that. And I not wasn't privy to this, but there must be some plotting of that path and some forethought to that. So I think the move to Madrid, which was the only other club 
of its type, you know, Barcelona is a very different club, but of its type that was similar to United in terms of global status and that, you know, the fame element. Uh, I think it was the natural move. I suppose the highlight or low light of that season was this extraordinary incident of the boot that was kicked to Manchester United play Arsenal, I think, in the FA Cup. United lose the game. The manager's very unhappy, kicks a boot from the middle of the room and it lands just above Beckham's head. What was that like for you? You must have been taking dozens of calls about what happened. Is this the end of Beckham's time at the club? What was it like to be in the middle of that storm? It was crazy. I mean, it was, you know, probably the busiest sort of 10 days of my time there in terms of just the media inquiries coming in. Actually, from our side, the story was relatively straightforward. It was an accident. Sir Alex apologised at the time. We move on. There was always, You always get that pressure from outside, from the media. Is like, well, we've got to hear him apologise. Will he say sorry? And I remember the first press conference we had after all that drama. There was, they were literally saying to him, to Sir Alex, you know, will you say sorry? And, you know, our message was he's already apologised to David. It was an accident. We've moved on. I remember taking loads of calls from journalists about you know, has he had stitches? You know, what qualifies as, a, as stitches or not? Does a butterfly thing count as a stitch? So he was getting slightly preposterous. And I remember a funny occasion, we were flying the week after, so about eight, nine days later, I think it was to Turin for a Champions League game. And I was on the plane, you'd always have the press at the back and the players at the front, and I'd sit in the middle and uh, some of the reporters were quite rightly giving me lots of jit because there was a big piece in the Times about the PR disaster at Old Trafford because of this situation. And and then I noticed in one of the papers there was a story in which someone had done an opinion poll of their international customers of the things they most liked and respected about Britain. And it was at the top was the BBC, the Royal Family and Manchester United. And I said, there's the story, you know, like, you know, it's not a new story, but you know, we're just huge everywhere in the world. So this stuff is always going to be a drama. I suppose that is the perfect segue to what you did next. So you went from Manchester United to Kensington Palace to work for for Prince Charles. Yeah. How much did dealing with David Beckham, Sir Alex Ferguson, prepare you for an institution that that big? Was it one of the few that actually came close? Yeah, and I subsequently discovered, you know, because the... The, the offer of the job came out of the blue and, and I had nothing to do with the royal family before then, so it sort of slightly baffled me. But why they were interested in me taking the job because I'd looked after these very prominent young men and my responsibility at the palace was not just for Prince Charles but for his sons, William and Harry, who obviously were subject of enormous global media scrutiny. Uh, and and United was just a soap opera machine. There was a story every day and... and, and and to a certain extent, you get the same with the royal family. The, the the attention from the British media and then the global media is really intense. So it was very good training in that regard, but obviously a completely different environment in which to operate a northern football club to a, a palace in London. But yeah, it was. I, I didn't find the, the the move that difficult because the you know the media dynamics are largely the same when it comes, particularly the popular media, the mid markets and the and the tabloids and the and the, the the way they focus attention on prominent people, especially young ones like the princes and like David and Co, is is very similar. It's intrusive, it's aggressive, it's twenty four seven, and you just you know the great thing was that I was used to that at Old Trafford and I could you know adapt very quickly to it at the Palace. Adam, something that does come 
out in that documentary, or you feel it does anyway, is that that brand Beckham slowly became a lot bigger than Manchester United. And um, it's fair to say Alex Ferguson wasn't happy with that, was he? No. And it's, it's, there's, a, there's an amazing moment in the documentary, not amazing, striking moment in the documentary, where Beckham says he didn't change. And then it cuts straight away to Sir Alex Ferguson saying, he definitely changed. Um, <laughs> and and it's interesting. I've been speaking to some people who were at United around that time, you know, basically saying, Do you think do you think he changed? Like what what does he mean by change? And I think the message you get from a lot of them is we don't want to sort of try and interpret the boss's comments kind of thing. But I think maybe it all just reached a point where the circus around it wasn't quite well, was almost too much to justify maybe what he was bringing. You know, by the end of his final season at Man United, he wasn't in the starting lineup. You know, that's the that's the key factor here. And, you know, given some of the stuff that Alex Ferguson put up with off the pitch from other players, when you think about someone like Cantona or Keane at certain times, ultimately, I think if the player was contributing absolutely everything that the coaching staff wanted to on the pitch, I think Beckham would have stayed. I think ultimately they they saw or foresaw some sort of drop-off because you have to remember at that time as well, he was negotiating a new contract at United and that was going to run out. So they had to make a decision that summer. Do we sign a new contract long-term or do we cash in? And, And look, ultimately they got Cristiano Ronaldo, right? Like whether that was by fortune or design, they essentially had someone who was going to become even bigger than Beckham, you know, certainly from a football perspective. So it has to go down as an extraordinarily good decision, really, from a Manchester United perspective. And I think when you see what Beckham became around the world subsequently, probably a good decision for Beckham as well. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Do you think if Beckham stayed at Manchester United, he would have become as global a star if it was the one club man, Carl? No, no. There's a good bit in the documentary where they talk about going on tour as Real Madrid and, and yeah, they go to Florentino Paris. I can't. I, I was shocked when Paris turned up in this documentary, by the way. Uh, and he said, was it worth getting Beckham? He goes, yeah, we tripled our revenue because we just went on tour to you know Far East Asia and Beckham is a superstar in his own right in China and Japan and other places there. And that was very, very interesting to see Beckham, okay, gets to one level as a Manchester United player, but enters another realm entirely as a Real Madrid player because you have to admit Real Madrid, different commercial entity to Manchester United further. I do always look at David Beckham's career and go, you probably should have won one extra Champions League. But hey, Real Madrid tripled their revenue. So maybe it's all worth it. Felipe, what, how big was Beckham at Madrid as a thing amongst young soccer fans in the United States? I mean, compared to when he was at United, I mean, would you be getting those games? Because Madrid were almost like the Spanish Harlem Globetrotters at that point. We had Ronaldo and Figo and Beckham and Zidane and Raul, Roberto Carlos. I mean, it's just incredible, like an incredible array. No, to your point, Adam, I think David Beckham, the Galactico years of Real Madrid, they were like the team that, for instance, ESPN, ESPN had the, here in the States, had the the rights to the Champions League. And this is an era before you could watch any league at any moment you wanted. Everything everything now today is, is on demand. But at the time, you only got a little bit. And the Champions League was like the big 
tournament that you could watch from beginning to end. And obviously those years, there were years where the where the Real Madrid were dominating the tournament. But David Beckham came and he was like this, uh, the, just like an addition. You know, the team was already stacked. The team was already very good. The team was already dominant in Europe. And you mentioned all the stars that they had. And then Beckham came along. And, you know, yes, he, he drew an audience, but... I always felt that from a football perspective, you know, at the time when he got to Madrid, he was just such a big pop culture icon, you know, like the football came next at that point. You know, he had moments at Madrid, but Madrid, that Galactico culture began to drop a little bit into to Carl's point. They didn't win the Champions League with David Beckham there. They won one La Liga, one Supercopa, and that's it. And and that that and honestly viewed at the at the, the stature of what Real Madrid is is a bit of a flop, a bit of a flop. I th- I think the the biggest problem around the Real Madrid and I think this may be also although they're not sort of very clear about it, I think it clearly had a role in the the reason they went to the states was what they refer to as, you know, the horrible stories, right? That that came out during his time in Spain around, you know, allegations of of affairs and all of that kind of thing at the time. And it, it felt a bit to me as though Victoria just kind of had enough, almost was like, maybe we just go to America to get ourselves as a family back on track as much as much as anything. I'll be happier there than I might have been in Spain. The kids will be happy in schools. It's good for the brand, you know, both Victoria and David, you know, what the opportunities that can come out of that. Um, so I had the sense, and you see by how often he's then going back to her saying, just going to do six months in Milan, uh, just going to do six months in Paris. Like you, you can see this kind of almost like little football boy in him yearning for maybe more from a football perspective when he sort of keeps coming, running back to Europe. Let's talk about the MLS because MLS, MLS, <laughs> MLS. Uh, you know, Adam alludes to it there, you know, feels like a, a fresh start for Beckham and actually for, for the league in itself or a, a statement moment for, for the league in itself, Felipe. Um, I mean, also this deal was actually quite lucrative in, in terms of the fact that he had option to have a franchise in MLS, which has now become into Miami. Could you just tell us about what the feeling was like when Brand Beckham landed in Los Angeles, Hollywood? Yeah, in it fact. was Hollywood. And and honestly, you know, when he signed for the, the Los Angeles Galaxy in 2007, again, Victoria Beckham was way more famous than David Beckham in the States. It, it, she came when they arrived. That that was really uh, what, what moved the needle is that to your point, we still there is a Spice Girl in Los Angeles and and she had brought her famous soccer player husband. But at the time it was massive because, you know, MLS, you know, Major League Soccer in 2007 was at a crossroads. They they, they didn't have an identity. Uh, they didn't have viewership. There's no TV deal like there is today with Apple TV. Uh, there were just 12 teams. Today there's 30. Uh, you mentioned the $25 million uh, stake that he had in his contract to purchase a team down the road. $25 million. You know, today, to, to get into MLS, a new franchise, $500 million. That's that's the going right now. But he was very savvy in, in, in how he managed to get that into his contract, David Beckham. And yes, he was compared to Pelé. You know, it was that big of a signing uh, at the time because the league needed something like that. The league needed a pull, a global star that could give some credibility to the league. You know, David Beckham also in my opinion, you know, he comes over at 31 years of age. We've talked about 
you know, what led up to that. But 31 years of age coming off a La Liga title with Real Madrid, like that was also incredible. People couldn't believe that. Like, why come now? And so David Beckham was everything to Major League Soccer. Uh, and, and, and again, I think he... Up until Messi, Lionel Messi coming to Major League Soccer, he was the biggest, the biggest get that the league could ever have. And and again, beyond Beckham, there have been some big stars: Andrew Apilo, Kaká, Didier Drogba, uh, Slatan Ibrahimovic. Many stars have come to play here, but no one had the impact that David Beckham had because he came literally and came with a message to say, "I'm here." to be an ambassador, to change the game, to grow the game. Something that if you ask Messi, which I asked him in the only press conference he's had, I asked Messi, you know, David Beckham came, held the flag and wanted to be what Pele did, you know, what, what he did here in the States. Is that something you're interested in? Messi's like, I'm not interested in that. I just want to play. But Beckham wanted to be the voice <laughs> of the, he wanted to be the, the face <laughs> of, of the league and, and really try to change the sport in America. That's an amazing distinction between Messi, you know, arguably the greatest football player of all time, and Beckham, who is an ambassador, first and foremost. I find it the documentary really speeds through those those years, as documentaries often do. It was, you know, this thing happened, and then they had a coffee, and then all of a sudden, cuts the documentary where they're playing, when on scoring. I'm like, it's more complicated than that. It's got to be more complicated than that. Well, I basically agree. You know, as a football fan. As you know, a passionate football fan, these documentaries can be very frustrating. I don't think these documentaries are for us, essentially, right? I think these are documentaries where, because you're trying to grab that general interest audience, you know, the headline is just Beckham, right? Everyone knows that that or that potential audience is so general that you do have to create a narrative of really dramatic peaks and troughs and. Enemies like Glenn Hoddle or wars with Landon Donovan or Alex Ferguson or whatever, and keep that that general audience, I think, with you as you go along for, for episodes. And I think that's what they do really very well, actually. And I think if they'd have gone too much into the weeds, then actually I think it would have made it, you know, a bit a little bit more. I'm not sure it would have been as good a documentary for the purposes of the documentary. Just a quick one on this sort of ambassadorial role. Let's not dismiss the fact that David Beckham was the ambassador for, for the Qatari World Cup. And he has been interviewed about that recently, actually at the premiere of the Beckham documentary. I think it was by Sky Sports. To be involved in another World Cup for me was important. I've always said that football is a game uh, that should be shared around the world. This was an opportunity for another nation to get, you know, uh, for, for the Arab world to get a, a World Cup uh, to host one of the biggest, if not the biggest, sporting events in the world. Once we were there, we knew that there was going to be people that were going to either talk about it a little bit more or let the football do the talking. And I think it was a great tournament. A lot of people were happy there. No one came up to me. I had a lot of conversations with the LBGTQ uh, people when I was there. Um, community when I was there and they said they'd been treated perfectly fine, they'd enjoyed the games uh, they felt it was the safest World Cup that they'd had for, for a long time um, so no, I you know, at the end of the day you know, it, was a, it was an important competition and one that I was proud to be part of Adam, what are your thoughts on, on that and the part that plays in Brand Beckham? I think it's been extraordinary how quickly he's recovered from it you know, actually 
when you think back to December, where he was this kind of ambassador for Qatar, but he didn't really do any, like, as an ambassador for Qatar, like you would think he would be out there doing interviews and talking about it and all of this kind of thing. He kind of went missing as an, as an ambassador in Qatar, having taken a lot of money. And I know because of the people that I spoke to out there, that there was quite a bit of frustration at times from the Qatari side about, you know, look, we're paying all this money where, you know, th- we need this guy to be doing a little bit more. But clearly there had been this huge backlash at home. There was this um, British comedian, Joe Lyser, that had done a viral social media clip, um, you know, comparing this support for the for the Qatari state during the World Cup uh, to his previous, uh, I suppose, perceived allyship for... Uh, LGBT people. I think he'd done a front cover of the gay magazine uh, Attitude in the early 2000s. And you also had just this sense of being one of the things I found kind of most uplifting actually from Victoria Beckham during the documentary where she was talking about their purple outfits for the wedding, right? And she was kind of just saying like, we just went and we wore what we want and we did what we want and who cares, right? If people don't like it, who cares? And that was kind of the spirit I think that that won the Beckhams a lot of support from, I suppose, minority groups at, at that time and respect. So uh, um, since then, you know, he's given a few interviews. He did an interview with The Athletic in which, you know, he kind of gave that answer around, I suppose, wanting to grow the game in different territories and wanting to change, you know, he feels he can change things, etc. What he did say on the red carpet last week was something along the lines of that he'd spoken to LGBT people on the ground in Qatar, which as someone who spent quite a lot of time attempting to do that and knowing how difficult those conversations can be to organise and involve, I found that strange. I would like him to explain or clarify what exactly he meant by that because I find it improbable that the people that were showing him around Qatar would have been introducing him to local local gay people. I mean, that just doesn't really check out at all. Um, but maybe he was talking about, you know, friends he has in the community back in Britain or the States or whatever. So, but what we've seen since then is Messi into Miami, um, this documentary, and it feels like whatever damage may have been done to the Beckham brand has almost immediately been recovered. And, and you still see this incredible childlike uh, popularity that he seems to have. He can go to an England... Yeah, I think he went, didn't he, during the World Cup to the, where the England players were training. And you saw how happy Bukayo Saka was to have a picture with him. Now, in the past, I'd have thought the value there was to Bukayo Saka, right? Because of Brand Beckham. I actually think the value in those photos was to Beckham because it stopped people talking about everything that was going on in Qatar and more like, oh, it's it's just England Becks again, right? Uh, and yeah, fascinating. And it also didn't mention uh, the whole story about, you know, what he seemed very desperate at one point over the last few years to get a knighthood, right? And uh, and things like that, which, you know, I think it would have been more interesting in some ways to hear him talk about some of this stuff. But equally, if it was going to be a very kind of manicured answer, there's no real point. There was There's a very good interview in GQ with Fisher Stevens about some of the choices in the documentary. Yeah, it's with uh, Jack Kings, the journalist, yes. I think, that did it. He's asked, you know, why, why didn't you cover too much about Paris Saint-Germain? And why didn't you cover too much about certain other things? And Fisher said, well, you know, 
we could have done those things, but we want to keep it nice and cohesive over four episodes and whatnot. And Fisher is indeed asked about Qatar and ambassadorial things, uh, to which he responds, you're going to have to ask David about that. One of those half answers where he makes it clear that he's not a big fan of Manchester City and Newcastle's ownership, but things are complicated. But I think, but I think he did say that David was happy to talk about it. It just didn't make sense in the whole, to, to put it in in some way. Yes, which, okay. Again, I'm, I'm going to bring up The Last Dance because The Last Dance apparently was a reference point for this documentary. The Last Dance has spawned its own subgenre of sporting documentaries that have, you know, they're really well cut. They've got all that bit where Nick Miller said this, where there's an empty chair and someone walks in and sits on the empty chair and is like, hello. And you go, oh, wow, that's a famous person. And they've got great music and there's loads of budget and they never quite get to the answer of what is this athlete about really? And there are two or three bits in the back of the documentary where I go, tell me more about that. That is the most interesting thing. And he quickly speed on. And it's just... Mm. There's, there's, a, there's a couple of moments where I actually think, you know, given they got Sir Alex Ferguson involved, I felt they kind of underused mm-hmm. him across the piece of the documentary. And I'd have loved to have seen them sat down opposite each other, actually, right? And and have that conversation. I know that's hugely that's basically just us being massively nosy. <laughs> but I think it could have it could have been it could have been a very positive and emotional conversation actually between the two between the two of them of, of huge value. And also I kind of felt the same around, you know, you could have done that with Glenn Hoddle if he'd have wanted to get involved. And you also could have done it with actually someone like Joe Lyser, and there could have been a huge value in that as well. I know that's a very different documentary and that's being greedy and all of that kind of thing. But I actually, I said this to someone earlier today, I, I felt like the least interesting parts of the documentary were when David Beckham was talking, <laughs> yes. right? So I, I'm absolutely fascinated by other people talking about David Beckham and the cult around Beckham and all of the celebrity around it. But when he was talking, I was a bit like, I just don't think you're going to say anything because you are so rehearsed and well-trained and I don't even know if you know you do, you're do. you doing yeah. it anymore but you're doing it Alright, let's just end it there because we could be here all day Huge thanks Adam, Carl and also Felipe all the way from Atlanta and also Paddy as well Now don't forget you can sign up to The Athletic today for a special limited time of just one ninety nine a month for 12 months at theathletic.com forward slash football pod and also... Why not leave us a quick review and rating? If you're enjoying the podcast, let us know what you think. Thank you so much for listening. See you soon. You've been listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark, with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. The Athletic.